Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Voitis, and I'm your host. My interview today is with Anjali Kosla. Anjali is the editor of FastCompany.com, the smart business media brand that focuses on innovation, leadership, and tech. There, she oversees the site and its team of editors and writers, helping to shape its coverage and even writing sometimes herself. But today we're talking about Anjali's 20s. And this episode is a little different because Anjali's formative journalism years happened a little bit later, when she was 29. Earlier in her 20s, she was working on an MFA in creative writing at UMass. And as she neared completing her degree, she was considering getting another MFA, this one in animation and film because she wasn't sure how she was going to make a living as a fiction writer and poet. Things changed when she decided to apply to journalism grad school at NYU, mostly on a whim. And she got in. But she wasn't sure if it was the right fit. You know, I sort of always really hated the media. So we're going to hear about how and why Anjali obviously changed her mind, and how she turned a networking opportunity into an internship that set her on the path to the career she has now. Let's hear from Anjali. So at the end of grad school, at the end of my MFA, just started to really wonder what I was going to do next. And I actually thought, perhaps what I'll do is just do another MFA. <laughs> and so I applied to, I mean, it's funny now, but oh my gosh. So like it, I, I thought, well, maybe I'll um, apply to, and I did apply to a bunch of MFA programs in animation and film. I was really get, getting into animation at the time and making mm-hmm. these very rudimentary stop motion animations with like play-doh oh cool yeah (laughs) yeah like setting them up in like cardboard boxes and like I had crazy inspirations like the first chapter of Gilgamesh or something and like it was like so ridiculous so it's very like high-minded yeah it was high-minded but these were like you'd be watching them and like the character's eye would fall off and stuff like (laughs) they were not very good They were not very good. Oh my gosh. Uh, like puppets. But like anyway, so I was doing that and so I thought maybe I'll go and try to do animation and in a film school. So I applied to a bunch of film programs like all over the place and I even got into a few of them. But while I was applying for my second <laughs> MFA, um, I came across this new program that was being launched at NYU called Studio Twenty. And it caught my eye because it was all about, they were sort of touting the internet as a place where experimental journalism could thrive. And I was really interested in that for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I sort of always really hated the media, actually. Um, Like, I was obsessed with the news and, and the world and journalism and had sort of dabbled in it since high school. 
but I was really sort of like someone who felt the media had too much control over which messages got out into the world and what got reported and that they always sort of reported about the same people. And I didn't agree that they always, you know, especially the mainstream media, shone a light on the things I thought were most important. And sometimes I thought it was very sensational. And I just, you know, I just, as a young person, I had a lot of strong feelings about the media. I had strong feelings about how the media had covered the Iraq war. I had like all these really mm -hmm. strong feelings about the media. And what was it, 2008 or 2009, I can't remember, after the Iranian election, when all that citizen media got so much attention right? Um, yeah. around the world and like the death of Nada, and I was just so amazed that because of the iPhone and, and cell phone cameras that we'd reached this point in social media and Twitter where anybody could sort of circumvent the media and get their message across. And I was so fascinated by that. I was like, wow, this could be the beginning of some golden egalitarian era of media. We, I mean, yeah. we, we can talk about where we're at now in 2018, but that's how I felt 10 years ago or what I sort of hoped for. And No, it is kind of incredible to think back about how that wasn't always the case, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not, look, it's not like people weren't trolling each other on the internet back then. I mean, blogs had comment sections that yes. <laughs> But I just thought, wow, like, this is real empowerment. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a great example. The protests after the Iranian election got a lot of media coverage. And I think one could argue that part of that is because of the citizen media. It sort of forced the mainstream media to, or, or inspired or motivated the mainstream media to cover that more, right? Because yeah. it's almost like they were competing with that coverage. Right, and also, the, yeah. also, there was a signal, right? There was a social signal that people are consuming this media, so we want to get in on that action, yep. I assume. I mean, this is all me guessing I wasn't in a newsroom then but like um so I was really inspired by that a the second thing is is that at UMass um in the springs I would teach this experimental writing class experimental nonfiction digital writing class and so <laughs> and we would like just use whatever was at our disposal like iMovie or PowerPoint to do stories so I was like oh digital nonfiction, I, I've taught that. Like, so like, I could totally apply for this program. So kind of on a whim, I applied to that Studio 20 program, and I didn't really have any journalism clips. I'm pretty sure what I sent was one of those stop motions <laughs> of, like, Enkidu eating a French fry or something. And then, um, honestly, some grad school essays going on, like, digression in mm -hmm. 20th century literature or something. So anyway, I submitted this very sort of odd application, I think, to the program. And then in April, I was wrapping up at UMass, and I got accepted into that NYU journalism program, but I was like, whatever, I'm not going to be a journalist, I, I'm going to go to film school, I can't go move to New York, blah, blah, blah. So I sort of forgot to respond to the letter, and they called me and said, are you coming? And I was like, oh, no, I'm not coming. So funny enough... I hung up the phone, and as soon as I hung up the phone, my dad called me. And so I was sort of laughing at him, to him. That was like, oh, why did I apply for this journalism program? Like, I'm not going to move to New York and be a journalist. And when he got off the phone, he really spent a lot of time looking at the website. And the Studio 20 program was very focused, and still is very focused on working directly with news organizations, and that every you know, assignment you did would in some way be involved with a real news organization. And, and they were basically sort of promising, like, this was going to be a pathway to getting a job. And yeah. so he, you know, perhaps out of a minor amount of concern for his 29-year-old <laughs> daughter pursuing her second MFA, called me back and said, you know, just I think you should just at least go down 
and talk to them and check the program out. So my dad generally gives me very good advice. So I was like, fine, that's, I'll totally do that. So I, I drove down to New York and spent the day in New York City, visited the program, had lunch with one of the professors, like learned about it, walked around New York, got stars in my eyes. I was like, New York, New York. And I was like, so I left <laughs> thinking I really wanted to go. And then they actually offered me funding. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And then I moved down with my husband to New York. We drove down to New York City. We got an apartment, lived on the fifth floor of walk-up. And I spent the whole summer thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Why am I going to journalism school? Why? Why, why am I really? doing this? Yeah, I really, like, I, re- I really wondered if I'd made the right decision. I really wondered. So when did you know that you had made the right decision? So... School started in the fall, and I didn't immediately know this was the right thing for me. I mean, I was all in. I thought, okay, I'm here. This has to get me a job. I thought that being a journalist is so much more practical than what I was doing before. But, you know, it was also right after the 2008 recession. Yeah, The bottom was falling out. Yeah, the bottom was sort of falling out of the media at the time. Not that it's not now, but (laughs) in a different way, a lot of journalists were losing their jobs. and, Mm -hmm. And I hadn't realized that this was not the easiest profession to get into either. And so, and, you know, I had a lot of anxiety about that. And I thought, I have to make this program work. I didn't know anybody who worked for a big media company or ABC News or any place like that before I moved to New York. I didn't live in that world or have friends in those circles. I was like, yeah. And, you know, I try to remind myself of this. Like, those places seem like, like such a big deal and so amazing and that people who work there must be, like, so amazing to get those jobs that's really mm-hmm. how I thought about it because it seemed so out of reach and like I was definitely all in with this program and I worked r- really hard in that program but it was a little bit daunting you know I was 29 and I you know, not an old person by any means I'm much older than that now but at the time I was like I'm 29 everyone in the program was several years younger than me and a lot of them had way more experience than I did as a journalist I mean one person had she had been a reporter at People magazine for several years and one man, he had, you know, written for the Times of London and the BBC and, and you know, another person had had his own TV show in Colorado. And I just had, you know, you know, random Britney Spears poems I had written. And like, I had, I didn't have anything that competed <laughs> yeah. with that, you know, like I didn't have real clips and experience. And I thought, gosh, like people are actually losing jobs right now. And I have to compete with people like this who have more experience. And so, what I wanted to do was be like a journalist, journalist. I wanted to write and be a reporter and and sort of experiment with storytelling Yeah. in all these new forms that were becoming available. I mean, at the time, the iPad had not even come out. We spent a lot of time in class imagining what magazines might look like on the iPad in the spring when the, spring, the iPad came oh, out. Yeah. So like that's I how, remember doing that's, that, too. We all thought the iPad right? was going to save journalism, and it totally just crashed and burned. I wonder if the timing was off. Maybe it was like too soon. I have no idea, but it is sort of amazing to think about back to that time before the iPad and how we were talking about what it would be like to consume media in the future. Yeah. And, um, so that was sort of the moment. And and the man who ran who launched and ran the Studio Twenty program is Jay Rosen at mm-hmm. NYU, and he obviously is really active on Twitter and has been for a really long time. And I was not on Twitter or any social media. I was not really a Facebooker. Like I just, like I had a Facebook account at one point and sort of stopped using it. I 
I was not into the social media, but he would talk about it so much in class and, you know, it was, had played such a big part in what I had seen at the time as sort of a democratization of media that I got on Twitter and later Facebook and took advantage of the fact that he was my professor Yeah, and spent a lot of time like with him figuring out ways that all these tools could be used to create better journalism. And so that was a very fruitful sort of time for me intellectually, thinking about where the media was going. And so because of that, in December, end of my first semester, the executive editor of the Daily News came in to talk to our class. Now, I am not from New York City, and I did not grow up reading the Daily News. I knew the Daily News and the New York Post mostly from when I was a kid. My mom would watch live with Regis and Kathy Lee, yeah. and Regis would always hold the papers up. Yeah. That was like my main relationship with those newspapers. You're like, this is the Regis a... paper. Yeah. Yeah, it was the Regis paper. So like, <laughs> so I wasn't super familiar with it, but I like got his the editor's card, and I went home and I spent like the whole, I remember the whole evening reading the website and looking at it and looking at what they were doing with their social media and their digital properties and all that. And I noticed they weren't doing much with the social especially, but with like a lot of things. And so I wrote to him and I said, I noticed you're not doing X, Y, Z. Would you like someone to do it? And what's really amazing, and I don't know if this could happen now, I think at the time there were there were no social media editors or audience right. development people. Those jobs did, literally didn't exist. The first person I know of who had that job was Jennifer Preston at the New York Times, and that was until like the following May. I mean, it was such a big deal when that job yeah. happened at the Times. But so I pitched him, and like he was like, "Sure, come in." <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, oh my wow. gosh!" <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I didn't know it was going to happen like that." So like, I came up with this huge proposal with these charts about growth and. Uh, user-generated content and all these things that years later I found in a drawer and it turned out like everything I had suggested was pretty much wrong. But at the time, I earnestly like <laughs> <laughs> it was all wrong. But I brought in this huge, <laughs> embarrassingly wrong. Hopefully he doesn't still have his copy. But um, I went in and um, I was like totally overdressed. I was wearing like this suit my mom had sent me from TJ Maxx and like no oh, one else was wearing yes. a suit. And, like, <laughs> I was that person. And I went to the Daily News office. And at the time it was on 33rd Street. It's not anymore, but in like the AP building. Okay. Um, it's like almost like a pyramid shaped building. And, and in the winter, because it's got these slanty walls, just huge chunks of ice are always falling on people. It's oh, like, like, yeah. Oh, please so like tell me it didn't fall like, on you. It didn't actually fall on you. Okay, it was like treacherous getting, it was like walking through an avalanche getting in. And so I was like a little bit shaken already. And I go in and, you know, it's just how you think the Daily News newsroom is going to be. There are piles of newspapers everywhere and everybody's got like books everywhere and piles mm-hmm. of CDs on the music reviewer's desk. And there's like Chinese food everywhere. And it was just like, it was like a movie to me. And I made my proposal to him and some of his colleagues, and they just gave me an internship there. I was almost, like, scared that they had because I didn't really feel, like, <laughs> completely like I knew what I was doing. And so are you kind of, like, that person? Like, it seems very um, confident. Like, you just emailed this guy with a proposal, and you weren't really sure. Uh, were you, like, nervous to do that? Or are you still kind of like that today? At the time, I was very nervous to email mm-hmm. him, but I think part of it was, it was, you know, end of my 20s and not really sure what I was doing with my life, and I just sort of felt like, okay, 
my husband had like given up a job to be to move to New York yeah. and stakes were pretty high like for me in my head that I just really wanted things to work and I had an overwhelming sense of feeling behind because I had I sort of switched careers a little bit or career paths a little bit and yeah. I just I, I just had this small sense of fear that maybe I couldn't start my life. It's not that I think having a quote unquote career is the best or most amazing thing in the world, but I just felt like incapable of having one and mm-hmm. and I wanted to be an adult who could, you know, <laughs> do that. Yeah. And it's not that I wasn't happy with what I'd been doing before. It's just I was like, I have to sort of make this work. And so I think a lot of the reason I did all that is because I just, I felt sort of scared, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of what I have done, and this is going to sound like the greatest soundbite, but I think a lot of what I've done in media has been driven by fear, like either by fear of missing out on something or like missing out on a story or fear of like um, not having like a perfect reputation, which is like really yeah. important to me. Or- not hopefully too much fear, but I think a little bit of fear can be pretty healthy if the fear is driven by yourself, you know, and and not by other people. And my fear comes from myself. So, so, so anyway, so I went, I got this job with them, and they were really great to me because they did, technically didn't call me an intern; they called me a consultant. Wow. <laughs> and I, I know, so I was there for about six months working for free. But I worked. I don't recommend this to anybody. And you have to remember, I had a partner, so it made it a little bit easier, you know, working. But this is not a viable solution for most people, and I appreciate that. I'm not. I'm totally against unpaid internships. We don't have unpaid internships here at Fast Company. We pay people. I wish we pay people more, but we pay people. But the point is, is that um, I basically worked there full time for free for six months while going to school. So I would literally, like, I mean, I would get there at like six, seven in the morning, work for a few hours, go to class, like come back, work longer. I just really, really wanted them to hire me. And luckily, and this again doesn't often doesn't happen, but under the six months, they did hire me. And so I was very lucky that way. But I also like sort of, you know, busted myself <laughs> at that job. Yeah. And And I learned a lot while I was working in those six months for them for free because in exchange, they let me kind of do anything. So, like, I contributed to cover stories and got to write for the web and worked on all their audience and social stuff and helped start live blogging and live chats there. And over time, we did this big, like, platform for user-generated photos. It was a funny time there. It was actually a very experimental time. We got to try a lot of really cool things out, and I learned a lot. Got to, like, do reporting and and edit, like where I really started to learn how to edit. So it was a really fruitful time at the Daily News those few years. But the whole time I just like, you know, worked my ass off because I was still in grad school for half of it. And I was working alongside people who'd been working for years and years and years, you know, as they're like equal in a lot of cases. And I just, I had a much deeper learning curve than everyone else. And I think that's another thing that has like, you were asking about just, you know, proactively sending the email. Yeah. I think this other feeling that I have to sort of very quickly climb walls in my own education mm-hmm. because I, I want to keep up with everybody. I think that has also driven me to be like that. I mean, every my career in, the, in my 30s has moved very quickly. And I think part of it's just because um, every job or promotion I've gotten – I feel like I've always gotten it maybe like two minutes before I was truly ready for it. And that's really forced me 
have to learn things very quickly. And that definitely happened a lot when I was at the Daily News, too. So it seems like, you know, a lot of persistence and just a little bit of fear kind of motivated you to get that first job at the Daily News. How did you end up at Fast Company? I ended up at Fast Company because one of my coworkers at the Daily News left, went to Fast Company, or went to, went to Inc., which is our yeah. owned by the same person as Fast Company, Joe Mansueto. Her husband worked at Fast Company. Um, he ran the design site and... So they recommended me. And I think this is a very big point about media. And I think it's really problematic, which is that so much hiring happens based on personal recommendations and people knowing mm-hmm. people. And I mean, I I have applied, especially when I was at the Daily News, I applied for jobs because I wasn't making that much money there. So I was looking for like, yeah. maybe I should like at least keep my options open. I never even got an interview for a job. I, I'm like 99% sure this is true. I can't remember of an, an instance. I never got a job interview when I applied cold off the internet, like off the job listing. I got interviews when somebody knew somebody and suggested me for the job. And I think that this is really problematic on a number of levels. I mean, first of all, it's really bad if you're looking to diversify your newsrooms, right? Because right just becomes this nepotistic circle of people with similar experiences and backgrounds and et cetera. Second of all, I think it really isolates people who don't live in New York City. I mean, like I said before, before I moved to New York, I didn't know anybody who worked at these places. It just seemed so far away. And I was like not part of that world at all. And, and now it's so easy for me to get anyone to talk about me to anyone in a place, you know? And so for people who are trying to get into media, I think this is a real problem that if you don't know people, right, who are willing to vouch for you, it gets a lot harder to get into these places. And I always read all the applications I get, even if I can't respond to all of them, because, and bring in people from from applications rather than just people who are suggested to me, because I think it's really important that I diversify my network when I'm interviewing people and talk to people who I might not necessarily know otherwise or who my friends or counterparts might not know. But I think this is a pretty common issue in the media. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like when you're interviewing job candidates, are you kind of thinking like, oh, this person, are you sort of thinking about like the future and like where you want to take things? And is it important to see like what someone could give you? a year into the job, like two years into the job. Yeah, uh, yes. And I think that the way to think about that is also to think about like not only what what they're going to give you two years from now, but what kind of path can you provide them? Because when people don't feel like I'm the same, you're the same, I'm sure, when people feel like they don't have a path, when they can't see how their job will be different a year Mm -hmm. from now, they become unhappy and they leave. And when you bring like a new team member into your newsroom or your magazine or whatever – you have to put a lot of effort into them and have a lot of patience at first because not everybody's just going to like jump in and like get it, like get your 
publication's voice and yeah. mission. And, you know, we're a funny business publication because we don't write about the street. We write about business innovation and creativity. We write about something really specific. We're writing for people who want to make money but want it to mean something. Like we're writing mm-hmm. for a very specific audience. And I struggled with that, with sort of mastering that um, when I got here. And everybody sort of struggles with it when they get here. And so you end up, you know, investing a lot in people. And it's really kind of a shame if they just leave after a year because you put in all that energy, right? And so and they just start over with someone else. And right. so I've always tried to, like, plan out with people, like, how their jobs will evolve. And so when you're interviewing people, often try, sort of picturing that from the get-go, like, where would this person go in a year? Would they be headed towards being, like, a feature writer? Or would they, like their tech reporter, do I see them covering one specific company more closely as their beat evolves? So like every year I sit down with people and we sort of plan how their job will evolve over the next year, right? So like if you want people to be useful to you down the line, you have to be kind of useful to them and make sure they're they're still learning. I mean... Yes, okay, I cannot tell you how much I agree with this. Employers have a responsibility to make sure their employees are always learning. But also, I want to add that it's your responsibility, too, to make sure you're learning. Remember back to our friend Kaylin Kelly's episode number 12. If you're not building skill on the job, you're going to have to go outside of work and pay for it. I think a lot of young people get really frustrated because most jobs, especially when you're like lower on the rung, those paths aren't always as clear, right? Right. Um, Or it's hard to find those openings. And it's also young men, but I find especially young women find it daunting to like ask for those opportunities. Yeah, it's almost like I feel this way sometimes, but in your 20s, it's sort of like you don't want to seem like an opportunist. So you don't want to let on, right? Like I've been called an opportunist. It sucks. You don't want to let on that you have like, so much ambition that you're a threat to someone but also I think like the most disheartening thing is feeling like you're just kind of spinning your wheels and doing work that isn't paying off for your like long-term goals. It is interesting about a lot of what you're saying about young people feeling like they're not their jobs aren't giving them a path. Um, I'm sorry to hear someone called you an opportunist. I mean I suppose that word can means that you're exploitative or something, but I I wouldn't want to hire somebody who was afraid to seize opportunities. (laughs) So I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure when that became a derogatory term. And I think there is a tinge of sexism in there, too. It was a man who called me that. I mean, but I think it's funny because, um, I'm sorry that happened to you. Oh, it's um, fine. Thank you, though. This is not, like, obviously black and white, but there's a trend, Mm -hmm. um, over the years, you know, one group has skewed more in one direction than another. I would say more often when men or young men even have come to me to ask for a raise, they've asked me for what they wanted. And I haven't always been able to honor their requests. And sometimes I've, I have been a little surprised at how much they asked for. But I've always respected them for just asking for what they want, you know. Yeah. And sort of this feeling like, okay, here's what I want. It's very practical. I'm going to ask for it, right? And, like, I believe I deserve it, so I'm going to ask. Not all. There's a range of that over there, but there's this, that's sort of a trend. I've much more overwhelmingly found with young women that 
either they won't ask for a raise. There have been a few times I've actually told a woman, younger woman in the office, you need to ask me for money at some point. Do you, you know what I mean? Or yeah. they will ask for very little, mm-hmm. and they'll justify it to me. They'll say, I'm really sorry, but I was wondering if I could get this small amount of money because my rent is going to go up next year, and it's just, you know, my roommate moved out. Like, they'll try to, like, justify it to me. And I've even suggested to some of them that you should come back in a week and ask me for what you actually want. Wow, really? Like out of practice, like, you know, like, you don't justify yourself to me, just ask. And I get the sense, and I've definitely felt like this too, so I think it's probably accurate. I've had this feeling, you've probably had this feeling, I think a lot of young women have this feeling that if I ask this person for too much, they're going to think that I think I'm worth more than I actually am. It's going to turn out that they are going to think I'm deluded about my own abilities and talents and that I'm actually not that good and they're going to be like appalled or they're going to laugh at me for for thinking that I deserve that much. That is generally not what people are thinking Yeah. <laughs> when you ask them for money. And being on the receiving end of that, that's not really what's going through my head. I'm thinking, oh, this is what I need to try to do to keep this person or I need to try to do something. You know what I mean? And yeah. But I think a lot of women have that imposter syndrome feeling and it drives us to like not ask for enough and just go for it and be, I guess, I don't know, opportunist, I don't know, like whatever. Like I don't think it's – I think we're scared. Yeah. And I I think you might just be a really good manager, it sounds like, because I've definitely had the like raise conversations where people are just like, no. Um Look, I've said no to people, too. I've had no money. I mean, I don't have a lot of money right now. I can't do everything people want from me. I mean, I don't have it. Um, I've definitely said no to people. But wherever it's possible, I've tried to – I've tried to find a solution. And I mean, also, by the way, sometimes when I've told somebody to come back and ask me again, I've still said no, but I wanted them to ask and find out that nothing bad would happen <laughs> if they just like, went for it. Yeah. So like, it's not even, um, or, I have, or I've been able to give them only a little bit of what they really wanted. But I just think it's really good practice to be able to ask. And I was very scared to ask for raises for a long time. And and when I was at the Daily News, I... Um, it was it was like in the it was like in the heat of the moment. I was like sort of having like <laughs> having an argument with the, with like our boss at the SVP, and I was really mad. And I got mad, and I just asked for like what I actually wanted, which I I thought I should be getting, and they said yes, and I wow. couldn't believe it. I said really, I said will you write that down right now? And they were like sure. <laughs> so I asked for like what I actually wanted, and they said yes. And so that really after that I wasn't afraid to ask anymore because I wasn't punished for asking. And I was so scared until that point. I'm, my my regret is that I was 31 before I got the guts to ask for that raise. And and so I would really like other women to not spend a whole decade of their working life not asking, you know. And so for me, like just that one yes, or at least the one not getting laughed out of the office when I asked, yeah. being taken seriously, really like sort of took away a lot of that fear. But totally the reason I was afraid to ask is I was afraid they were going to think I thought too much of myself. It's such a weird fear to have, and I totally get it. Like, I sure Well, you were punished, same. right, because you were called opportunist. Yeah, so I've been punished. The, you had the opposite right. has happened to you, probably. You've probably become more anxious But I think that it. fear was 
I almost feel like it's just like socialized into women that we don't want to appear greedy or like we we don't want other people to think that we think we're better than we actually are. My my parents are pretty aggressive, like feminists in the sense that like they just made sure I always asked for what I wanted. And so I had a little bit of an edge maybe there, but sure, socially, like societally, I think that is true. And But I also do think it's changing, especially among other women. I think women in their 20s now are more supportive of each other than women were in my 20s. Well, I knew lots of wonderful, awesome women in my 20s. Like, I just think that culturally it's becoming indoctrinated in us that we all have to support each other, right? And I think that helps a lot. And I also think it's really exciting to think about all the cool, awesome, enlightened women who are in their 20s now who 10 years from now will start running offices and newsrooms and you know what I mean? So I just, I try to, yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of like faith in the future. Any other like professional advice for women in their 20s that you have? Yeah, I think it's another thing is I think especially in this industry, people get scared to take a leap or make a sort of make a big shift in their career. But honestly, mm-hmm. like I did it at the end of my 20s mm-hmm. and who knows, I might do it again in my 30s and again in my 40s. But I think people should not be afraid to do that. It's like exciting and risky to do that, but it can be really fruitful if you're unhappy with what you're doing or it's not working out for you. Like, just change it. Easier said than done and based on a lot of circumstantial stuff too. But I'm really glad that I took the leap. For me, it was grad school, though I don't think it would have had to have been grad school. I look back and I see all these times I felt stuck in my 20s. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like so much like tenderness towards that person because I had so much time ahead of me and I felt like I, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just felt, I felt stuck, but I wasn't stuck. It was just, you know, it was on my path. Thank you so much, Anjali, for being my guest today. I loved her story about digging in and really using the fear that she wouldn't be able to find a journalism job to make sure she succeeded. May we all be as brave as the Anjali who sent that first email to the executive editor at the Daily News and ask for the raises that we want and deserve. Follow Anjali on Twitter at HelloMountFuji and follow Fast Company at Fast Company. That's all for now. See you next time.